Welcome back to this Pro Rata, where we take just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. I'm Dan Primack. On today's show, coronavirus kills a tech conference and the new owner of America's second largest local news publisher. But first, building safer cities. So for those of you who still watch local TV newscasts, a staple of them is the pedestrian or cyclist getting killed by a car. Almost always an accident, almost always glossed over as the cost of urban living. But that's not actually true everywhere, not in every city. In Helsinki and Oslo, for example, not a single pedestrian or cyclist was killed by a car last year. Now, part of that is obviously good fortune, but more of it is good design. These cities have wider sidewalks than most and narrower car lanes and lower speed limit. They've also invested in modernized public transit, making it a more appealing alternative to driving. And politicians there have actively worked to change the language around road fatalities, reframing it more as a public health issue than a transit issue. And just for context, Helsinki has around the same number of residents as Louisville, Kentucky, where 23 pedestrians and six cyclists were killed last year. Within smart city circles, there's a name for cities like Helsinki and Oslo or at least those who aspire to be like them. It's called Vision Zero, and several U.S. municipalities have signed on, including New York, Chicago, Boston, Los Angeles, and San Francisco. But none of them seem to be on track to meet their targets. And in fact, some of them have actually seen deaths increase recently, particularly among cyclists. The bottom line, America is beginning to talk about the problem, but isn't yet serious about solving it. In 15 seconds, we'll go deeper with Axios' Sam Baker. But first, this. Axios chief technology correspondent Ina Fried shares breaking news and analysis on the most consequential companies and players in tech from the Valley to D.C. Subscribe to get smarter faster at signup.axios.com. And now back to the Pro Rata podcast. We're joined now by Axios' Sam Baker. When we think about kind of pedestrian and cyclist safety in cities, uh, particularly as cities get more crowded, a lot of that conversation, at least in my world, seems to revolve around tech innovation, things like sensors and autonomous vehicles or even smart traffic lights. But what you seem to be finding is that the bigger, the more impactful changes are around kind of physical, urban and traffic planning, correct? Yeah, that's right. It just kind of gets back to this question of who are you building for? What are you sort of trying to accommodate first? Because a lot of things like automatic sensors or different kinds of timed lights, all of that is still sort of how do we fit pedestrians in more safely around these cars? If you flip that on its head and say cities are for people, how do we get some cars can be in there, but how do we make this sort of a pedestrian first or cyclist first, a, a human being first? city, I think you start to look at a lot of different solutions. Okay, so let's talk about what you've seen and what is working in Europe. And the biggest thing seems to be literally just slowing down cars, which seems the most basic thing and either the easiest to implement or maybe the hardest based on human behavior. Does research support the idea that lower speeds lead to less severe crashes? Yeah, it absolutely does. It sort of stands to reason, although research also does back this up, that if you get hit by a car, the faster that car is going, the worse your injury is likely to be. But also, as you alluded to, changes driver's behavior. You know, just think about you yourself kind of sitting in traffic, moving slowly through a neighborhood. You're probably more likely to notice the people around you, someone crossing the street, the cars around you versus when you're on the highway going 80 miles an hour, you just go. True. When I am in traffic, I am never looking down at my phone. Fair enough. Sam, let me ask, a lot of the roads in these so-called Vision Zero cities in Europe, they've got wider sidewalks and narrower roadways than we do in a lot of the cities here in America. Why the difference? Why are they built differently there than they mostly have been here? To some extent, they have a built-in advantage because a lot of European cities obviously are older than American cities. So they were built before the car when 
people just needed to live closer to the places they went every day, and therefore there's sort of more built-in density. But, you know, cars are not an exclusively American phenomenon. Plenty of other cities around the world sort of made, you know, what I think you could call the same mistakes that the U.S. made, and they made their streets more amenable to cars, and now they're sort of moving back in the other direction. So this is something you can change even if you've got a newer city or a more spread out city. We're seeing kind of some cities, including the U.S., and you and I both live in Boston now, we're seeing lots more bike lanes, crosswalks that kind of allow for some diagonal pedestrian crossing. For U.S. cities that are already built, and and as you know, once you've got a skyscraper on both sides of the road, it is hard to do much outside of change what's within that void. What are some of the most effective things that cities right now can do to reduce pedestrian and cyclist deaths? There's a couple of pretty easy things. One, dedicate more space to sidewalks and bike lanes, which just sort of, you know, prioritizes them in the flow of the street. Reducing speed limits is a big one. If you're going to have a bike lane, a protected bike lane, one where there's some sort of, you know, barrier between car traffic and the bike lane, that's a pretty easy intervention, just takes a couple of little bollards. There's a lot of easy interventions to sort of make the streets more amenable to cyclists and pedestrians. Is there usually the political will to do that, though? And I particularly think of it from kind of from the business perspective, because, you know, we think about cars going up and down streets, but there's also trucks. And those trucks are the things that are delivering to the stores and the restaurants and the shops that are selling things to the people who live in those neighborhoods. Is there political will, do you think, usually to make these changes and to be honest, spend the money and make the investments? No, I don't think there is. And I think that's probably the biggest obstacle that you see. I mean, anybody, if you live in sort of an American city of any size, I'm sure you've experienced this with bike share stations. You know, taking out one parallel parking spot on a street can accommodate a whole rack of bikes. But in my neighborhood, I'm sure in your neighborhood, all over the place, once you start talking about taking out that one parking space, people are absolutely apoplectic. You know, it can take six years of lobbying and advocacy to get a bike lane installed. But really, all that is, is, you know, a paint job. So it's very logistically easy to do these things. But I think you're right that the political will and just sort of changing drivers behavior to say, look, this is not all going to be built around you anymore. That's the really hard part. Sam, final question for you. Your job here at Axios is healthcare editor, not traffic editor or transportation editor. You're healthcare editor. This is ultimately a healthcare issue, right? Whether they die or not, getting hit by a car leads you to a hospital. Do you think there is any significant push by the U.S. healthcare community to reframe this as a healthcare issue as opposed to a traffic issue? Don't really think so, no. I mean, you obviously you're right. Injury and death obviously are, are healthcare issues. The amount of time that most Americans spend sitting in their cars, you could argue, is a healthcare issue contributing to sort of a sedentary lifestyle. Then why don't we see, you know, for example, we often see ER doctors go out and lobby and be very public about gun violence, right? Because as they'll say, we're the ones who have to deal with the aftermath of this. They're in our ER. People who get hit by cars are in their ER much more often. So why not the, at least a similar level or, or a, a quasi similar level of public pressure? I think because it is so hard to change and requires so many changes that don't feel necessarily like healthcare changes. I mean, we're talking about changing the distribution of space on a public street, changing sort of infrastructure, even if it's easy to change infrastructure. What is involved in that, I think, just feels so many steps removed from the healthcare impacts that it really does have, you know, that it's just a difficult connection for people to make. Sam Baker, Axios' healthcare editor. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. My final two right after this. 
there is more news out there than ever before, but these days, it's harder than ever to find it and to know what to trust. Axios AM takes the effort out of getting smart by synthesizing the 10 stories that will drive the day and telling you why they matter. Subscribe at signup.axios.com. And now, back to the ProRata Podcast. Now it's time for my final two. And first up is Mobile World Congress, the mobile phone industry's largest annual conference, which yesterday was canceled after tons of participants bailed over coronavirus fears. For mobile players, they really do view this development as more significant than just losing out on an expense account junket. This is a geographically fragmented market, as Axios' Ina Fried points out this morning, with key infrastructure players in the Nordics, some of the largest phone makers in Asia, and key software and chip makers in the US. Mobile World Congress is the one place they all get together each year. Plus, get to meet with all the global reporters who cover mobile, including those interested in 5G networking. The question now is if this cancellation, which was due to something completely outside of the mobile industry's control, is a one-off sort of thing, or if everybody might sit back and think, you know what, we're actually fine without it. And finally, McClatchy, the country's second largest publisher of local newspapers, filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy today. Three things to know. First, this will not immediately impact McClatchy's operations. They got a little bit of cash to keep going. Two, the causes here are pretty simple. Declining revenue and consumer interest in print newspapers and massive employee pension obligations back from when local print papers were king. Number three, McClatchy's largest creditor is a New Jersey hedge fund called Chatham Asset Management which appears likely to assume control of the company. If that name's familiar, it's because Chatham is the longtime owner of American Media, the National Enquirer publisher that became embroiled in Donald Trump's relationships with Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal. Chatham had agreed last year to sell off American Media, but as of last month, still hadn't. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven, have a great National Tortellini Day. And we'll be back next Tuesday with another Pro Rata Podcast.